Good morning. Uh, my name is Joel. We'll get to that in a second. Another Joel, not to confuse you with other people who are on here named Joel. Hey, a couple of weeks ago, as I was uh, preparing for my time with you this morning, I listened to a couple of uh, Sunday morning messages, and one of them was, was your Joel, not, not me. And I think it was the last, last message he had before he and Julie embarked on their wonderful and exciting journey of uh, parenting and parental leave. He mentioned that there'd be a bunch of number of other people who would be kind of filling in on Sundays, and he said that uh, most of them would be people who are part of Res City, and then he said that there would be someone else. So for those who um, have your Res City Sunday morning bingo cards, I'm someone else. <laughs> My name is Joel Nelson, a little bit about me. I'm originally from Pennsylvania, came to Minnesota a long, 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 long time ago to attend Bethel University and then went straight on to seminary. And uh, I've been on the pastoral staff of big churches, not so big churches. I've planted a church, and for almost 20 years, I was on staff at Conversion or Central, which is a network of which, can, which Red City is a part of, of 250 or so churches across Minnesota and Iowa. Uh, and my role with Conversion or Central was, and I'm still involved to some degree, but it was to, to help start churches as well as strengthening churches and help pastors along the way. In fact, uh, I was uh, around and kind of uh, uh, added to the support and the encouragement uh, for Red City and Joel and Julie. In fact, um, hang on. Hope I didn't lose your tipper. I'm in charge of this. That's my keys. Alex, I don't know what I did with that. It's in my coat pocket, probably. I'm sure you can do it up there. Anyhow, I have a picture. There it is. I was here on the first Sunday. I was here on that first Sunday, uh, cold, chilly. Um, yeah, why don't you bring... Thank you. Everyone, my wife, Denise. That's, that's what she does. Uh, but I was there that first Sunday uh, when Res City uh, was born. In fact, um, one of the things I did when I was at Conversion or Central is when a church would close for whatever reason, if they, had, if they had good stuff, I would try and get to that church and get the good stuff and then call some of our newer churches and say, I got some free stuff for you. Would you want it? And um, my understanding is you're still using some of that stuff. From a, from a church in Grand Rapids, so that was kind of cool to hear about that. My wife, Denise, who, uh, who you met, I've uh, been married about 35 years, uh, we, we, three sons and their wives, they all live in the Twin Cities, so we're, we're glad about that. And perhaps you know my oldest son, Caleb, he and his wife, Emma. Uh, Caleb came with me on that first Sunday uh, in January, and he's been here ever since, so thanks for letting him hang out, appreciate that a, a great deal. Uh, since uh, early September, there you go. See, I can do this. Since early September, you've been looking at some of the parables of Jesus. And the parables are just wonderful teaching tools that use the universal language of story and of, and of imagery to tell us something about God, to tell us stuff about what life is like under the reign of the kingdom of heaven, tell us about some of the qualities and aspects of what it means to be a follower of, of Jesus. And this morning, I get to wrap up your time uh, with the parables. Now, I'm sure uh, a lot of this has been covered already earlier in the series, but I just want to remind you, when I approach parables, here's some kind of the, the ground rules that I do to unpack parables. Because parables, understanding parables, they're different as to how you would understand uh, the poetry of Psalms or the wisdom of Proverbs or the, the, the narratives in the Old Testament or the teachings of the New Testament or the, the, uh, the apocalyptic literature of, uh, of Revelation. You, you do it all differently in that way. So here's what guides me as I seek to understand parables. And the first is this. Parables, there's only one main point. 
Jesus is trying to, to express something. For, he's telling a story for a specific reason. Maybe it's to answer a question. Maybe it's to clarify something. Maybe it's to offer an illustration of what he's talking about. Parables aren't three-point sermons. Uh, instead, they have a singular main point that's meant to, to what's being expressed, what Jesus wants to get across. Not every detail of the story is important because it may not fit into that, that main point. Second, it's good to remember the context of which the parable was told and the people who first heard that parable. Um, uh, 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 obvious example is when I say the word Samaritan, what do you think of? Well, good. You, I heard it. You say good. I mean, the good Samaritan. That was, if you were here in October, you heard, a, you heard a message on the parable of the good Samaritan. That's how we refer to it. We have hospitals and nonprofits and relief agencies and social services organizations, which all have in their name Samaritan. But in the context of the crowd who heard that story, Samaritans were the enemies of the Jews. They represented those who had intermarried with the invading armies, and they were considered almost like half-breeds and pagans, and they were considered unclean dogs, and a good Jew would have nothing to do with a Samaritan, and a Samaritan was well aware of that. So the context is important. Third, how did the author use that parable? Remember, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they were, they were editors. They had all these, all these observations about the ministry of Jesus and what he, his teachings. They had these firsthand reports and accounts of his teachings. But they had editorial license to arrange them in a way that, that fit into the purpose of what they're trying to do with the audience that they were trying to reach. And finally, what might God be saying to us through today, through, through the parable? So that's the plan this morning. That's where we're going to go. Let me, let me kind of start with a, a scenario and a question. Here's a scenario. The owner of your company is uh, going to take a well-deserved sabbatical. He's grown the company into a large and successful organization, but he's going to go away for a bit, like two, maybe three years, and he's going to completely, completely disconnect. And you, you're valued, you're a capable employee. He's given you charge over, he's entrusted you with a significant portion of that company. So how are you going to respond? Are you going to say, this is a, this is a huge opportunity. This is an exciting time. I, this, is, this is great. It's a, I can seize the time. Or is it more like, wow, that's a challenge that, uh, that I'm overwhelmed with. I need to figure out how, I, how I'm going to do this. It's, it's, it's crazy. When he, when he returns after his two or three-year sabbatical, those parts of the company that he's put under your charge, what do you hope that they would look like? What would you hope you could accomplish during that time? Moving the business forward in, even, in, in greater and even more dramatic ways? Or maybe you'd be saying, if I can just keep things the same, that would be, that would be a win. Or maybe you'd say, I just don't want to mess up. I don't, I, don't want, I don't want to mess this up. As you go into his office when he comes back, and you have your slide deck prime to give him the report of what happened while he was gone. What do you want to have done with that organization during his absence? With that in mind, let's look at the parable of the talents found in Matthew 25. It's beginning at verse 14. It's one of the longer parables, so let's just kind of jump right in. Jesus is talking, telling the story. He says, for it's just like a man. I got to do that. It's just like a man about to go on a journey. He called his own servants and entrusted his possessions to them. Then he gave one five talents, to another two talents, and to another one talent, depending on each one's ability. Then he went on a journey. hope I'm getting this right. Immediately, the man who received the five talents went, put them to work, and earned five more. In the same way, the man who had earned two more, the, the man who had two earned two more, 
But the man who received one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five talents approached, presented five more talents, and said, Master, you gave me five talents? See, I've earned five more. The master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I'm going to put you in charge of many things. Come share your master's joy. The man who had two talents also approached him. He said, Master, you gave me two talents. See, I've earned two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come, come share your master's joy. The man who had received one talent also approached the master and said, Master, I, I, I know you. You're a harsh man, reaping where you haven't sown and gathering where you haven't scattered seeds. So I was afraid, and I went off, and I hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. The master replied, you evil, lazy servant. If you knew that I reap where I haven't sown and I gather where I haven't scattered, then you should have deposited my money with the bankers, and I would have received my money back with interest when I returned. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten. For to everyone who has more, everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have more than enough. But the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And throw this good-for-nothing servant into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, first of all, let me get caught up here. Here's, I think, the main point. God calls us to accountability. Now, when, for me at least, when I hear about accountability, it's really easy for me to fall only on the side of accountability that we might associate with pain or retribution or, or judgment and difficulty. Then you throw God into the mix, and the image that a lot of people have is of this, of this angry God who wants to get even with you, who serves as judge and serves as jury, who's a killjoy to anything that we would want to do. But I hope you understand the power, the purpose, the, the value of accountability, especially, especially God's call for accountability on us. I mean, in our relationships and our jobs, accountability helps us stay on track. It helps us meet our goals. It helps us to maintain healthy relationships. We take responsibility for our actions, our decisions, and, and the consequences that come with it. Whether it be a spouse or a boss or God, Accountability is foundational to integrity and follow-through. I mean, with God, it can provide this moral compass, that sense of purpose. If you believe that your actions are ultimately answerable to God, then that should serve to inspire a life that is more virtuous, more compassionate, more attuned to what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It encourages our attitudes and behaviors to reflect more and more and more the attitude and the behavior and purpose that Jesus has for us. So I hope you see that as a positive, the value in God calling us to accountability. And I'm going to kind of highlight two aspects of accountability that I think Jesus includes in this parable. And the first one is this. It's accountability for actions. The guy is going on this long trip. He calls a couple of his servants, and he, and he entrusts them with his possessions in the form of talents. And talents were currency, and, and the amounts that he gave, they, they were large, they were significant. Now, for the seeking to understand, put ourselves in the shoes of that culture, it wasn't out of the ordinary for him to treat some of his servants as partners in his enterprise. It wasn't out of the ordinary. Would have, would have been, okay, his listeners would have said, okay, I've, I've heard of that before. 
The master had cash reserves at the time was eight talents, and he distributed those eight talents among his three servants. Obviously, there was some confidence that he could entrust these servants with his wealth. And we see by his response to the third servant that he had some expectations that they would put what he had given them to work. It's also, it's hard to miss that he gave them different gifts. One got five, one got two, and the last one got, got one. Now, my personal perspective kind of pauses here, and I kind of have to say, I wonder if that third servant was a little ticked. I mean, he knew the guy who got five. He's a good guy. You know, don't, don't get me wrong. He's a good colleague, but five times better? I don't, I don't think so. But the boss, Jesus tells us, knows what he's doing because he gave out the resources depending on each one's ability. It wasn't willy-nilly. It wasn't random. It was, it was thoughtful. It was strategic. For a couple of different... It's strategic. Uh, he knew what he was doing. He was... He's saying, I'm not going to be cruel here. I'm doing this out of loving compassion because I know what you can handle and I'll give you what I can, I'll entrust with you what you can handle. It was probably the best thing he could have done for each, 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 uh, each servant there. I don't know if you can relate to this, but over the years, I've applied for a couple of different, different jobs, ministry, ministry jobs. Both of them, I felt, were a little more high profile than what I was currently doing. And, and uh, to be honest with you, I, both felt that, I felt that they were both a little cooler than what I was currently doing. And you know what? I knew I'd be good at them. I could do that. Come on, I could do that. But I didn't get them, and yeah, I was disappointed. But in hindsight, in hindsight, I'm glad I didn't get them because they were ultimately beyond my capacity. They were ultimately beyond my ability. They were five-talent jobs, and I had to say, I'm okay being a two-talent guy. I can, I can live with that. In addition to the different gifts, there's also different responses, which are also not hard to miss. For two of the servants, their responses were identified as faithful. To both of them, the master said, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. They did their job well. Their faith was rewarded. They were given more responsibility. And they're invited to come sit at the master's table. The response of the third servant doesn't reflect faithfulness. In fact, it reflects faithlessness. He basically tells the master that, he goes, I know you're a big shot. I know you have high standards. I know you're a shrewd businessman. You're, you're a shrewd boss. I know you demand the best, but I was just afraid I might disappoint you, that I might not be able to live up to your expectations. So I decided to hide your money. I decided to hide your money in a secure place. Here it is, safe and secure, every penny. Count it if you want to. It's all there. His actions were the complete opposite of the first two. He gave, he gave a speech. The first two didn't give a speech. He gave a speech to, to justify his inactivity, his, his faithlessness. He's more interested in what he didn't lose. His actions reflect the idea that in choosing not to risk, in choosing, in choosing fear of taking a step backwards, that he basically chose to not step forward. The master holds all the servants accountable for their actions. His response to, the, to those who were faithful was different than his response to the third servant. The third servant who operated out of faithlessness and fear. And the master's angry because he says, you could have put it in the bank and got me a quarter percent interest. You could have got something for it. That, that would have been something. So he takes the money from the third servant who opted to play it safe. 
and he gives it to the first servant. See, God holds us accountable for our actions. Here's the takeaway for this. What we do with what we have is more important than how much we have. Think about that for a second. What we do with what we have is more important with how much we have. It doesn't matter how much each servant received. It's what they did with that. Over the years, I've had the opportunity to uh, hear just a lot of great pastors and teachers and speakers at different conferences and seminars and workshops. And, and I mean, they open up scriptures in, in fresh ways. They connect dots that, that just go, wow. Never, never, never figured it that way. One of the teaching pastors of the church that, uh, that we attend, he's, he's, he's good. He'll take a verse or a story or a concept from the Bible that I thought I, I knew from every conceivable angle, and he'll make it new and fresh and relevant, and it's memorized. Every time it's memorized, and I just go, wow. But occasionally, and, and more so when I was younger, I used to think, I could be like that. If only given the chance. If I only had the right breaks with the right connections at the right time, I could do that, but I don't have the right breaks, the right connections at the right time. But what I've learned is that, that they are playing the hand that God gave them, and I need to play the hand that God has given me. I need to stop focusing on the things that I don't have and focus on what I do have because that's what God expects of me. Just a two-talent guy. Before I leave this thought, take a look again at how Jesus ends the parable. Before the master throws the third servant out, he says this in verse 29. For to everyone who has, more will be given and he will have more than enough. But from the one who does not have, even what he has, we've taken away from him. Okay, another little, uh, another little Bible exegetical tool here for you. Um, one of the things that you use when you, you look at when you look at parables and some of the other genres in the, in, in, um, found in the Bible is this little thing called the rule of end stress. What that means is basically what is said at the end of the story often carries greater importance meaning that you give special attention to who is speaking at the end. You give special attention to, to what is being said at the end. So here's what I think is happening here at the end of this parable. Jesus is telling us something very important about his expectations and our accountability and our actions. He's saying everyone who uses what they have, they will end up getting more. But the one who doesn't use what they have then even that eventually is going to be taken away from them. For the follower of Jesus, it matters that we make much of what he has given us for, for his good. It matters both for us and him. Those who trust Jesus, those who seek to serve Jesus, are rewarded with more opportunities to serve him, to make good use of that which has been given claiming to be, seeking to be a follower of Jesus, we are accountable for our actions. In addition to our actions, we're also accountable for our, our attitude. The actions of the three servants were directly related to the attitudes that they held regarding the master 
and the responsibility that he gave them. The first two had an attitude that reflected the reality of the master's expectations, to take what had been given and to use it for the good of the master and for the advancement of the master's endeavors. Their attitude was, well, the master has given us this responsibility to continue to carry out the mission, the task, the work of the company. Their attitude was that the business, the work of the master, was now their work, and they got to work. They used what the master gave them, and they increased it. You see, their attitude was based on they knew the master well. They knew his expectations. They knew he would be returning eventually, and he would want an account of what they did with what he provided. Third servant, his attitude was way different. It's like he didn't know the master well enough to understand how the master really operated and what the master's expectations really were. So he approached the expectations and the accountability of the master with fear of what, of what might happen if he messed up. He adopted the attitude of, of, of doing nothing because to not try, to not try was better than to try and fail. For him, his attitude was better to keep your head down then stand out. Better let someone else kind of blaze the trail, clear the path, than for him to kind of move outside of his comfort zone. I mean, if the master, I don't know if, he, I don't know if they did this back then, if the master would have had little bracelets made that said WWMD, what would the master do? I don't know if they did that. But they all, he gave them all one when they left. The first two would look at their WWMD bracelet and they would have said, what would the master do? He expects us to do something with what he's given us. He's entrusted us with this responsibility, and we are not going to let him down. We take it seriously out of this attitude. We're going to have actions going to reflect that. And they got to work, and they used what they were given. That third servant, though, he looked at his WWMD bracelet, and his attitude was, I, I don't want to blow this. I don't want the master angry with me. See, his attitude towards the master was all wrong. It was like all those negative connotations that come to mind when we think of accountability, that they, were, they, they colored his attitude. It set his course for his action or inaction. He figured the safest course, his attitude said, the safest course is to go with the status quo, to tuck away that which, which I've been given, um, and then when the master comes back, I can pull it out and say, here, here it is. Nothing's changed along that line. The thing he didn't understand was that there was no way he could lose. Because the master says, you could have at least given it to the bank and got interest, and that would have, been, would have been better. There was no way the third servant could lose. Well, there was one way. There was one way the third servant could disappoint his master and lose, and that was by doing nothing. Here's a takeaway. What we think about God shows in how we relate to God and how we behave towards God. What we think about God, the quality of our relationship, the depth of our understanding is reflected in how we relate and how we behave towards God. This parable, it's pretty straightforward. It's a, it's a parable. So again, every comparison doesn't fit. Uh, you know, it's not a one-for-one -one comparison, but, but it's obvious. God's the master. We are the servants. 
and we get to decide what kind of servant we're going to be. We get to decide that. We're going to be more like the first two or more like the third. Finally, let me, let me, let me offer you the following to consider for today uh, from this parable. First is this. God's son, Jesus, is, is coming back. Unlike the master in the parable, Jesus, the master, really did not totally disconnect. He didn't show up on that first Christmas and then hung around for 33, 30 plus years and did his thing and then left, left his followers to kind of keep things going until, until he came back someday. Through his Holy Spirit, he continues to be Emmanuel, God with us. But there's a day when Jesus will physically come back. And like the servants, we, we have been entrusted as his followers with gifts and passions and, and skills and, and, and a purpose and a calling and even more. And the expectation that comes with that is that our attitudes and our actions would reflect that of the master, Jesus. It's telling to see the context that Matthew decided to, to put this little parable in. The preceding chapter, Matthew 24, Jesus is talking to his disciples, not the crowd, not the curious. He's talking to his followers, his disciples. He's talking to them about some of the signs that are going to be happening before Jesus returns again. And just before the parable of this talent, the first 13 verses of Matthew 25, it's the parable of the bridesmaids, which is all about being prepared for when Jesus comes again. Jesus is coming back, and we are accountable in both attitude and actions with what he has given us. Also, this parable reminds us, is a reminder that our actions flow out of our attitudes. At the end of the day, my actions are an outflow of my heart. The things that, that my heart are attuned to, those are the things that will be seen in what I do and how I do it and why I do it. Proverbs 4.23 says, says that the, to guard your heart above all else because the heart is the source of life. What's in our heart, our attitude, ultimately is going to flow out of us. The heart is the, sense of, is the source of everything we do. These attitudes that come from our heart, they overflow into our, into our words and into our actions. I mean, think of, think of a natural spring. Natural springs, water flows to the surface deep from underground. It then accumulates in pools, and it runs off into creeks and streams, and it nourishes everything along the way. The foundation of living as a follower of Jesus Christ and hearing the words, well done, good and faithful servant, is a heart that is attuned and aligned with Jesus. If you take that same spring and you, you plug it up, you stop the flow of water, or if somehow you poison the water, the flow becomes toxic. It no longer nourishes that which is downstream. You threaten life downstream. Everything depends on the condition of the spring. Our actions flow out of our attitudes, attitudes which speak to the relationship, the understanding, the intimacy that we have with Jesus. Also important, I think, in this parable, for me, it's, it's, it's the idea that we should be seeking transformation, not just transaction. See, ours is a world of transaction. It's transaction-based. You provide something for me, and I will, in turn, provide something for you. 
I do something for you, and I would hope and expect that you would return the favor and do something for me. Too many marriages have settled for merely being a transaction. Friendships and family relationships and other relationships, they can also degrade to the point where they're only about the give and the take of transaction. You give me something that I need, and I will give you something you need. But, you know, we can approach God in the same spirit of transaction. God, you do something for me, and I'll do something for you. I mean, the, the, the quintessential cliche one is, God, get me out of this jam, and I will start going to church. It's transaction. But we do it, we do it, we do it much more subtly. I mean, maybe we do come and serve a little bit. Maybe we give some of our resources. Maybe we, we read a daily devotional on our, on our, on our little app on our phone, which, which are all good. They're all good. But what's the attitude behind those actions? Is it transactional? God, do you see what I'm doing here? You see, I'm, I'm, I'm taking some time. I'm carving some time out for, for you. You see that, right? Well, good. Okay, here's what I need from you now. Here's what I need for you right now. I mean, I'm covering my bases. I'm hedging my bets. <clears throat> here's what I need. Don't mess with that over there. That's mine. Don't, don't mess with that. Because over there is not part of the deal. What if the attitude behind such things with God was transformational? Where the expectations of what God would do for you would be to change you, would be to transform you. That'd be a life worth living. Don't settle for a transactional relationship with the master. Settle for a transformational one where, where you spend time with him, getting to know him deeper and richer and more intimate, and say, God, come. I'm doing this because I want you to change me to be more like you. Again, that's the path for the follower of Jesus to hear. Not just in the end when he turns, when the master returns, but to hear him in the quietness of his heart say, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Finally, and being accountable to God, you need to avoid and resist drift. I mentioned I uh, grew up in uh, Pennsylvania uh, on Lake Erie. Lake was a couple miles from our house. And um, in Erie, there's, a, uh, there's a, a state park called Presque Isle State Park. And basically, <clears throat> it's a seven-mile sand spit. It's a peninsula that kind of goes out and kind of arches around and creates a little bay by downtown. And on this peninsula, it's, it's seven miles of... Uh, of sandy beaches. And growing up, uh, we spent a lot, of, a lot of summer days there at the beach. The best days were when the wind was strong because the strong wind meant bigger waves. And because of the position of the beaches and, and uh, east, west, north, south, and the way the, 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 the wind blew, um, it, nine out of 10 times, the wind would blow left to right and the current would be pretty strong going left to right as well. So when we'd be in the lake as kids and, you know, we'd be body surfing or tossing a football or playing or whatever, um, you had to pay special attention because you wouldn't notice that the current would be pushing you down the beach. So you kind of have to find markers on the beach. I mean, it might have been the lifeguard tower, might have been some flags, might have been some other landmark um, because the current would push and it would cause us to drift. And we would constantly, our, our, my mother would be always reminding us to constantly be checking to be aligned with those markers. 
there are countless currents that are slowly or not so slowly pushing us and ultimately changing our direction, moving us away from Jesus. And we settle then just for merely a spiritual transaction. I mean, many are subtle. Rarely is drift intended. But slowly our attitudes shift and we think less about God. Or we rationalize and we think of him differently. And then our hearts change and our actions change. And that reflects the drift. All you have to do to drift away from Jesus is nothing. That's all it takes. We all need an anchor, something that keeps us aligned to the markers that are on the shore. That anchor begins with, I think, getting to know the master better. Maybe your faith has stalled and it's stale. Maybe you feel that you, you just have enough Jesus to get, to, get your, to get by. I have just enough Jesus in my life just to, just to get by. But you realize I'd probably be the servant who would bury the talent that's given because you don't want to blow it. But you don't want to take any kind of risks either. Another part of that anchor is, is community, a community of those who are seeking to be more like Jesus, where you do it together, where there's encouragement and support and love and accountability. It's a place full of other imperfect people who are traveling together to support and encourage each other. So they may all hear someday Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. Well, well done. See, God has given me gifts and skills. He's given me resources. He's given me talents. He's provided me opportunities. And if you've made in faith a commitment to Jesus Christ, you also have gifts and skills and talents and resources and opportunities. And yours are, yours are different than mine. Mine are different than yours. One's not better, one's not worse, just, just different. But they're all needed. And I need to, for me, I need to constantly remember that the most effective way I can wield all the things that he has given me is to be zeroed in on who God is and how I can best reflect him with the talents he's given me and the places that he's called me. That my attitude, regardless of the circumstances, is rooted in God and pursuing his, his very best for me. But I just can't sit on the sidelines. We're to be contributors to what God's doing, not just consumers. I need, I need to get in the game. Whether it's using my gifts and who God has made me to be a part of a community such as, such as this place, or to, to encourage one another, to bear one another's burdens, to weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice, to, to lift each other up. And it's also taking actions outside the walls and in, in workplaces and schools and neighborhoods and sports teams and gyms and, and anywhere that we can be salt and light as representatives for the master and his work until he returns. See, you were given talents. And you know what? They're tailor-made just for you. If you've buried them, what's holding you back? Is it fear? Uncertainty? Doubt? If that's the case, then maybe it would be helpful for you to reacquaint yourself with God and his son Jesus. Get to know him well. Ask him to shape or reshape your attitude. Ask him to direct your actions. And then take the risk. Don't hold back. 
Don't bury the talent. And when you do that, then you can listen to him as he says, well done, my child. Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you for revealing stuff to us in different ways. And in this case, Lord, may we uh, accept that challenge, understanding, God, that you are seeking our best, you want our best, that you have a plan for us, a plan that uh, is just tailor-made for us, and you give us opportunities and tools and resources to make that happen. So, Lord, I pray that uh, <clears throat> you would work on our attitudes where they need work, you'd work on our actions where they need actions, Lord, and, and uh, that we don't have to wait until you return to hear the well done. But we would hear the well done every day through your still small voice, through others we travel this journey with, and just that uh, the Holy Spirit speaking to us, Lord. So thanks for that. We ask this in your name. Amen.